Hello, everybody. Uh, do we have my slides? We'll see. So, um, my name is Ben. I'm a director of product at Babylon Health uh, in the UK. Our global mission is to put affordable and accessible healthcare into the hands of every human. Um, oh, something is up with my slides. Oh, well, we'll, we'll find out. Um, before I do anything else, though, can I ask you a favor? Um, I'll attempt some German really badly. Uh, sag meinen Namen. Again. Again. Ah, oh, music to my ears. My whole life growing up in the UK, everybody gets my family name wrong. Honestly, thank you so much. Uh, so I grew up in England. I'm the son of a, uh, my Welsh mother and a Dutch father. So you can imagine what I think about Brexit. Anyway, I want to begin my story today um, with uh, a war between two nations. And, and it begins with a button, a big red button. Not one that launches a nuclear war or anything like that, although actually that did happen between these two nations. Um, but one that stops everyone from working when you push this button. So this button is responsible for winning this war, even today. And so my question is, how is it possible that a button that slows everyone down can win a war? Well, I'll take you back to the 1970s, uh, a Toyota factory in Japan. When a plant worker realizes that something is wrong with the way they are working and it's difficult to complete their task, they push this button. Everyone stops, the team gets together, the plant shuts down for a moment, the manager even comes down from their office and they join a group discussion. And they work out how this person could work more efficiently in future to make the job easier. This is a modern example. It's called a sticker picker. Previously, it was difficult to take these stickers and stick them on the car. So this roll mechanism here actually saves 29 seconds per vehicle. Now, that may not seem like much, but when you add that up over time, this is a huge improvement. This way of working was pioneered in Japan in the 50s and 60s called Kaizen, or you might know it as continuous improvement. Um, so it's about exploring your work, trying to find efficiencies. Um, and really, using this method, the Japanese car manufacturers not only sped up production, but it's possibly why they have the most reliable cars in the world today, or at least that's the reputation. This may be why Toyota is the largest car manufacturer in the world today. Now, in the 1980s, they tried this method in US factories, but it really did not catch on. American middle managers in these plants just could not wrap their heads around this way of working. They just couldn't imagine giving an employee the power to shut down the line and have a chat. So their culture was too hierarchical, too top-down, too narrow-minded. Uh, they kept demanding continual, constant progress from workers. And as a result, the quality was far worse. Cars would often come off the line without even a steering wheel. So they had to create systems to repair the cars after they were built. It's no wonder they lost this war. Now, I tell this story not because everybody should work the Toyota way. Uh, that's not a bad idea. But really, why I tell this story is because the route to efficiency was counterintuitive. Yeah, it was most human of failings to think that going fast would be the way forward. The route to speeding up was only possible by slowing down. So where are we today? Well, I'm, I'm here today because over the past few years, I've just had this feeling that our industry is like those US middle managers. 
We are over-indexing on speed, you know, refusing to think about alternative mindsets. Our relationship to digital work in particular and process is broken. Are we blindly following trends? That's my real question. And I tweeted about this a few months ago, and lots of people responded positively. So I think I was sort of onto something. And I liken this to you know, the myth of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. I think a lot of people feel like they are pushing JIRA tickets up a hill and not really making any progress. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> feel the love, yeah. So, I think to some degree we've forgotten what real progress means. So, you know, I, I jest about this, but, you know, did Johnny Ive have a lean canvas on the wall when he created the iPhone? Maybe not. Or maybe at Xerox Park where they created the GUI, did they track their agile velocity? I don't think so. Or when they designed this building in China, did they use a design sprint? No, they did not. Um, most damning of all, Peter Higgs said that in today's environment, he would never have had the time to come up with the ideas for the Higgs boson particle. So, no Large Hadron Collider then. So, at the heart of this, our understanding of time, effort, and progress is kind of broken. Now, I don't know if anybody else does this. I, I have this weird habit of reading people that I really, really strongly disagree with in order to understand their mindset. And recently, I was reading are the work of Dominic Cummings. Do you know who this is? Okay, a few. Um, so he's one of the principal architects of Brexit. Don't agree with him about many things, but it was kind of interesting what he wrote. He said, and, and incidentally, this may be why he has something against the EU. Organizations are programmed by their incentives to prioritize seniority, process, and prestige over high performance. This slows and degrades decision, decisions. Organizations tend to make too slowly those decisions that should be fast, and too quickly those decisions that should be slow. Ah, this was like a light bulb. I suddenly, this explains an enormous amount of the behaviors that I've been seeing in past organizations. I've been asking myself about this paradox. Why is it working slow and fast are both valuable? When do you apply them? I actually learned both kind of inadvertently in my life. Um, in a parallel universe, I am a Formula One driver. As a child, um, I was uh, a, a karting champion, and I beat Jensen Button when I was 10. Yeah. <laughs> also, my dad tells me. I, I don't really remember. <laughs> um, so I learned the power of like really rapid decision-making from motorsport. Like, there's no room for error. You have to make decisions in milliseconds. And then I learned the value of slow in design research, finding clarity by exploring a problem over a longer period of time. And my talk is about this. We're over-indexing on speed only and why this isn't productive. So let's play a little game. Let's play spot the synonym for speed in recent industry jargon. So we have a look up here. Agile, perhaps one of the most misunderstood ideas of the modern world. Design sprints, let's do the same thing faster. Lean, again, efficiency is the obsession. So how many of these trends have fooled people into thinking that it's just about speed, particularly if you're on the outside of a production team, perhaps in a senior role? Follow these trends blindly, you miss a bigger picture. I like this tweet from Nick Fink. Maybe we're just having more and more bad ideas faster, which makes everyone speed up, which pressures us to have more and more bad ideas faster, and so it goes on and on and on. I mean, there's some use to that, right? We're growing more ideas, but, but I would like to everybody to, to take a moment.
So there's a few things I've noticed which are, if you like, the warning signs of pointless speed. Um, the first one I've touched on already, buzzword bingo. And, and my prime example of this was a little while ago, I was in an organization, a very, very large organization with millions and millions of pounds of resources. And this higher up kept saying design sprints over and over again, like obsessively saying the word design sprints. And I suddenly realized this person was mistaking design for design sprints. They didn't understand the difference. Is all, are all design problems solvable in five days? I think not. So are we getting better at understanding new ways of working? Perhaps not. Now, the counterpart of the stakeholder who's not really learned what these trends are about yet is the zealot. Right? So in some teams, I've encountered this version of agile or lean being held up as some kind of ultimate process. Look, we found the answer to all our dreams. It's the end of uncertainty. But often the result is busy work. We followed the process. It must be right. But no. And Jeff Bezos understood this very well. He said, if you're not watchful, the process becomes the thing. It becomes, the process becomes the proxy for the result that you actually want. Another sign is scientism, you know, irrelevant vanity metrics being used to prove progress. But when you kind of dig a bit deeper, you realize there isn't anything really there. I think there's a lot of socio-political context that I won't go into, but I think it's safe to say that our society is moving more towards the positivist view of the world, where everything needs to be proven by numbers. I think this is particularly true in, in tech, where, where you have STEM and engineering. Now, I think there's an additional problem in the digital world here as well, which is that we're more prone to this than other industries because we do not see the humans, right? We do not see the people who are using our work. We're not in their bedrooms, not in their homes, on the train when they're using our products. It's not like retail, for example, where you can't avoid somebody coming up to you and saying, where is the organic couscous? So we rely more on proxy metrics as our principal way to decide things. So my point here is really that you have to take the time to get closer to your humans. Anything else leads to inhumane outcomes. Google Analytics does not tell you how you are affecting people's lives. Another trend is the sunk cost fallacy, when you've made a previous decision that you won't let go of. I see a lot of this. And actually, moving at speed leaves less room for thinking that challenges your assumptions. Another one is bias to build. Who here has heard some, in tech, has heard some version of, but the developers don't have anything to do in the backlog? You know, the stakeholders look at the empty backlog and conclude that nothing is happening and money is being wasted. It all reminds me a little bit of Bill Hicks, who said this about his former boss. I always used to get from bosses, Hicks, how come you're not working? I go, there's nothing to do. And they go, well, you pretend like you're working. Yeah, why don't you pretend I'm working? <laughs> you get paid more than me, you fantasize, buddy. Hell, pretend I'm mopping. Knock yourself out. <laughs> now, I don't actually agree with all of what Bill says, right? Because actually, when there's nothing visible to do, there are things you can help with, right? If, you, if you're not productive at this moment, there's nothing in the backlog. This is when you fix bugs, make things faster, things people actually care about. Perhaps this is when you Kaizen. Is that such a bad idea? Another thing I've noticed is unrealistic roadmaps. When your bosses, the competition, investors are breathing down your neck, the easy thing to do is to overpromise. But very few organizations take the time to make a roadmap that really kind of connects the dots. They see some shiny thing, and they're going to demand it.
I think the results are often quite disappointing when you do that. Now, you'll hear me talk later about clarity, but in the case of a realistic roadmap, I think it's a good sign when you can express it very clearly and concisely at a high level. Like, for example, Tesla. Who has seen Tesla's uh, secret plan? You know, this is, has, has held true for, I think, over 10 years now. It's a sign that you've done the hard thinking when you can express it this simply and clearly. So with all of these trends, the smart thing to do isn't you know, to buy into it. right? The brave thing to do is to push that stop button to challenge the norms. That's our chance to understand, clarify what progress really means, and change course. So I, when I sat down to write this talk, <laughs> I was like, OK, I'm not going to do the ultimate process. I'm not going to pretend like I know how to do innovation for everyone. You know, I'm just not going to present this magical diagram that solves everything, because I don't actually think there is one. But what I will do is pass on a handful of tips that I think may help. So first of all is mind your decision speed. You know, the modern, perhaps the modern software era has fooled us into thinking that every decision can be made quickly. And there are some organizations who actually have this as a mantra. They have rituals to essentially eliminate any kind of slow decision making. I actually think that's, that's terribly wrong as some sort of universal, because you effectively forbid deep thought on anything. To make every decision quickly is literally to prevent yourself from using your own intellect. Coming back to Bezos again, he has a pretty good handle on lots of things. He said, there are two types of decisions, really. Type 1 decisions are slow, mission-critical, high-impact choices that impact a larger strategy. And type 2 are lower-stakes choices that can easily be reversed, if needs be. He said, one common pitfall for large organizations is one-size-fits-all decision-making. One-way door decisions must be made methodically, carefully, and slowly, with great deliberation and consultation. In fact, when I read this, I realized that lots of decisions that I'd seen organizations I was in make uh, were effectively made too quickly. And then when I would look at the competition, I realized they were ahead of us today because they slowed down at an earlier point in time. John Cutler asks, how are you reflecting on your decision quality? So we, we tend to do, you know, um, uh, the post-mortems of our projects. We tend to reflect on how things have been going, right? And when we look at the outputs, but how often do we actually review the decisions themselves? Should that one have been fast or slow? Was this a good one? Was this a bad one? We don't actually take the time to reflect on that very often. So one thing I would suggest is just map your recent decisions for appropriate speed and effectiveness. You know, it's just a really simple method to try and assess whether you think your decisions are working well. So number two, know your environment. And I've noticed something kind of paradoxical about the way we work in our organizational cultures. If we think about really game-changing innovation, some of the best examples come from environments that really didn't have any pressure to deliver, right? Like Xerox Park with the GUI or academic research. And at the opposite end, there are environments like the ones I've been critical of or worked in, where the pressure to deliver is near constant. And actually, like, this is the inverse proportion here, right? If, you, if you're under pressure to deliver, that's when you need much more slow thinking. Because if you work at a place where there's no pressure, well, then you don't necessarily have to clarify so much about the, the, the direction. You can afford to take your time and play with more nebulous ideas. So one of the most useful things I've found is this framework by Robert Quinn and Kim Cameron on organizational cultures. They say there are sort of four principal types. So clans. 
This is where people prefer to make decisions together, like governments or education. They like to do things together, but they find rapid decision-making harder. The adhocracy, right? This is smaller organizations, startups, make it up as you go along. Fast, improvised action and autonomy is the norm. It's no surprise that our Silicon Valley kind of fetishizes this model. They're less willing to do slow thinking. This is about doing things first. So, hierarchies, fairly self-explanatory. Decisions are passed upwards and downwards. This is about stability of decision-making, but efficiency in delivery, doing things the right way. And then the least common one is markets. In these environments, you deal in numbers. Nobody decides things without a metric. There's a bias towards speed because they often judge slow as wasting money. This is about getting the job done. Now, I hope that having presented that model, you've sort of started to see a little bit of your own organizational culture in those models. But do remember that no organization is just one. Organizations tend to be a mix of those. But what I'm saying is that if you know exactly what drives that organization, you can actually um, be much more prepared to create change within it by understanding what it values. Number three, cultivate listening. So I think the thing that I love most about the Toyota factory story is that actually this is a micro habit of a small group of people getting together and listening to each other. Now that's not normally a habit a compassionate habit that we would associate in an industrial setting. Um, there's some evidence that this habit of really, really listening really, really works and has a great effect on productivity. Um, Google had this project called Project Aristotle, and they found that one of the main things that high-performing teams have in common is equality of turn-taking. So no one voice in the room takes over the others. They're really, really good at listening to each other. So a quick tip is to assess the team quality by are there voices that overpower others? In my own life, nothing has forced me to slow down more than the practice of NVC, also known as nonviolent communication. And one of the practitioners, Mickey Kashtan, said this, we are expected in works to be civil and friendly without revealing the true nature of our experience and without expressing genuine concern for others or ourselves. But tenderness builds connection, and connection, just that right amount, is necessary for efficient collaboration. So if you take any of this seriously, a really small thing is just to start meeting with, meetings with check-in. Small, find small ways to be a little bit more connected, a little bit more compassionate in your work. All right, last one. Sweat your vision. And I think this is the really common one. If there's a common theme to all this confusion about speed, it's knowing what you are working towards. When people are being very efficient at producing something that's potentially kind of not going anywhere, it goes along with the fact that no one has articulated or no one agrees what the true direction of the effort is. A good rule of thumb is that if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it and your team doesn't agree. So when UIE looked into what made high-performing teams, they found that people on those teams were able to recite a very clear, concise, and consistent statement about what that future product was supposed to do for people. I see a lot of organizations today adopting the Spotify model. Quick show of hands, who's doing that at the moment? Uh, maybe not as many as I thought. Well, with the Spotify model, I see a lot of people being given autonomy in those teams. But they miss the alignment part. You can't have an autonomous team working towards something unless they know in really, really clear terms what those outcomes are. So you need very strong alignment on purpose. 
So the lesson here is that clarity creates focus, alignment. Focus creates efficiency and progress. Imagine that change, express it slowly, and then work quickly towards it. Organizations often work far too fast at that first part, and then it leaves them with a downstream mess of inefficiency later on. So a couple of things that I do to sweat the vision. I give people on Teams uh, a, a template for writing a value proposition. And I say, OK, tell me what the value of your product is. And they all write one on their own. And then you read them all out. And then you realize lots of people have a completely different idea of what this product is supposed to do. So then you know, really, if everybody is aligned or not. And the second one is relentlessly revise the value proposition for what it is you're doing. Um, I actually heard that this is how Instagram was created. They wrote the words about what the core product was over and over and over again. So really, if you think 10 times is enough, do it 50 times. All right, 17 seconds. Oh, no, I'm over now. Sorry. <laughs> I think there's a, there's, a, there's a timeless lesson about things that work very quickly. And uh, to conclude, I want to show you something, a video of something that is so fast, it's kind of slightly still unbelievable to me that it's not sped up. Ah, tire change in two seconds. Let's watch it in slow motion. Amazing. <laughs> now, the thing that we forget when we see the team work this well together and we just, it flashes before our eyes, is all of the crazy hard work that went into making it that smooth. Right? The, the years of practice, the hard work that went into it, the designing the tools right, the rehearsing over and over again. When we see something this magical, we forget all of the slow and difficult work that goes into it. And this, I think, is the essence of slow down to speed up. Our digital practice is trying to move faster and faster, but forgetting all of the slow thinking and effort that goes into getting there. I'll leave you with this thought by Doug Rushkoff. When things begin accelerating wildly out of control, sometimes patience is the only answer. Press pause. Thank you. OK, quickly, you've got to go, you've got to go. I've got to go? Get off, get off, quick, quick. You've got to move on. Uh, you've got to be faster, faster. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. Thank you. I really enjoy it. Do we have, Chris, do I have time? For... Yeah, come, come, okay. come, come. I'm just curious, because we started the day off with um, a kind of um, Dr. Philby sketched out. She, she knows more about us than we know ourselves, about the different generations. Yeah. And, do you, and it makes me wonder if, if um, Generation Alpha, you know, the kids born after 2011, uh -huh. like, to what extent is there a vision of an organizational culture of 10 years' time? Do you have something like that? And, and will that generation, would their characteristics fit into that vision? I, I have absolutely no idea. OK, great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I look at my kids today and think, you know, they're going to have a whole different set of challenges, and yeah. it would be dangerous for us to impose. Like, you know, when you, parents in the room, you know, you start to think about, OK, what am I going to teach them that's so important? But the problem is we're basing that on the problems that we faced and not the problems that they faced. Sure. So I think it's really, really hard to make a call like that. But I do think that we are experiencing some of the problems that will become challenges for them today, right? Like constant distraction. You know, yeah. I'm very nervous about giving my 11-year-old daughter a smartphone, for example. Mm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the loss of the slow thinking, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Thank you very much. No worries. <laughs>